0: Good morning. On behalf of the Bioethics Forum of Princeton University, I would like to welcome you to the first ever international undergraduate bioethics conference, Bioethics in the New Millennium. We are extremely pleased to be able to host so many undergraduates to Princeton University for this event. This conference is an outgrowth of the Bioethics Forum, an undergraduate group dedicated to the contemplation of issues at the intersection of science and society believing that it is crucial to draw students into the arena of bioethical discussion. We are overwhelmed to be able to welcome 29 speakers and 300 students from 92 schools and 37 states to Princeton's campus this weekend. As genetics and biomedical technology continue to progress, a public discourse is increasingly necessary in order to put the technology to its proper and most effective use. Because the coming decades promise to fundamentally change the way we practice medicine, make reproductive decisions, and approach treating disease, it is critical that students actively discuss these issues. It will largely be our generation that will be responsible for setting the legal and social precedents that will define healthcare care and medical research in the 21st century. The high level of speaker and student interest in this conference further proves that bioethics is becoming a major issue on campuses across the nation. Entirely student run, the Bioethics Forum began planning for this event almost a year ago. In that time, almost 50 Princeton students have been involved in aspects of the conference process. The most important first step was confirming the highly respected group of speakers you will be meeting over the next two days. We have been astounded by the enthusiasm of these speakers, all of whom are giving their time and expertise without receiving honoraria. We are also extremely grateful to all of those who helped (laughs) fund... Little did they know. We are also extremely grateful to all of those who helped fund this event. It appears a little more fundraising may be necessary. (laughs) And a complete list of donors can be found near the front of your binder. Finally, I would like to thank all of you, the participants, for finding the resources, energy, and time to attend this conference. We hope that this weekend will foster your interest in bioethics, and that it will encourage you to continue to actively seek out opportunities to discuss these very important issues. I would now like to introduce Dr. Harold Shapiro, President of Princeton University and Chair of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission. Exceedingly qualified to discuss a multitude of bioethical issues, President Shapiro has also been extremely helpful to the Bioethics Forum over the past four years. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Harold Shapiro.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, My role here today is primarily to welcome everyone to Princeton. But I'm going to end up by making a forecast that has to do with bioethics. A very small number of you in the audience know that my own academic background is in economics, and particularly economic forecasting, so I'm used to making forecasts. I'm also used to making forecasts that turn out to be not quite correct. But nevertheless, I've had a lot of... uh, (laughs) disappointments in that respect during my career, but I will make one in bioethics before I sit down. So first of all, let me extend a warmest welcome uh, to students uh, from other colleges and universities around this country. It's really a great pleasure to have you here in Princeton, and I hope you'll be back here on our campus on other occasions. I also want to extend my uh, personal gratitude to all the speakers, leaders of sessions, panel discussions, and so on, who are here under whatever set of arrangements (laughs) that have been made, uh, we are very honored by your presence, uh, no matter what those arrangements uh, are, and uh, I look forward, indeed, myself, to hearing many of you uh, speak. But I think I want to uh, extend a special note of gratitude to the students that were referred to just a few moments ago, the uh, 40 or 50 or 60 undergraduates here at Princeton, who not only mobilized the effort for this conference, but mobilized the effort to establish a journal in this area and establish many activities here on campus, which really have enriched our campus life. So to those in the audience who are in that category of students here at Princeton, who have generated all this enthusiasm, thank you uh, very, very much. Now, bioethics, of course, is a very capacious subject. It's grown over the years to include many, many things that deals with the intersection of ethics and science, science and technology. Uh, It deals with the relationship between people, uh, whether it's doctor and patient. It deals with issues of distributive justice and many, many other issues which you are aware of. As I look at the uh, agenda of today's conference, however, and today and tomorrow's conference, the part of bioethics that people will be addressing, at least in my judgment, is the section where you find the interaction between ethics and science. Ethics, of course, uh, tells us how we should act. There's a serious effort to think thoughtfully about how we should act. And science, on the other hand, uh, deals with uncovering uh, the secrets of nature, so to speak, and by itself uh, has very little moral content. But the applications of science have enormous uh, ethical implications, and that's where this aspect of bioethics comes in. And as one looks at the history, at least as I look at the history of bioethics, of course, you see waves of interest over the years, a wave of interest that uh, started off surrounding the Nuremberg trials regarding how doctors, patients, investigators, and patients should be, or human subjects should relate to each other and so on. And, of course, uh, recent issues, recent developments in genetics, most particularly, of course, uh, the Dolly experiment, have generated another wave of great interest in bioethics. And the forecast I'm going to give in just a minute or two has to do with this great wave of interest, whether that's going to continue or whether it will, like previous waves of interest in bioethics, eventually ebb and wane for another issue to come along. Now, one of the things that characterizes the history of bioethics, in my view, is a certain kind of anxiety. That is, there's a certain anxiety about the doctor-patient relationship to go back uh, the farthest in uh, bioethics, in history of bioethics. Just how should these people relate to each other and why? Then more recently, regarding the relationship between investigators and human subjects, is also another level of anxiety arises. How are we to resolve the issues of concern to the researcher and the protection of human subjects? People are anxious about that, most especially around the Nuremberg trials, but other uh, uh, developments in this country and elsewhere whether it's the Tuskegee experiment or the radiation experiments, other experiments in other areas, other levels of anxiety arise. And again, with the issue of cloning or the Dolly experiment and what it seemed to imply about uh, human beings and how they would relate to each other, uh, it releases another wave of anxiety in people's minds. Whether justified or not justified, whether it's temporary or permanent, anxiety gets released. And what I want to make my prediction about is whether there are going to be more or less anxiety as we go ahead. Now, in a society such as ours, which is broadly described as a democratic and pluralistic society, there are, of course, many morally contested issues, issues on which thoughtful people simply disagree on what is the appropriate way to act and to think about various actions. As a result of that, in a society like ours, which has both these disagreements and an aversion to moral tyranny, that is, we don't want to impose one view on another, at least many of us do not want to impose one view on another, there will always be a certain amount of anxiety regarding which, whose views ought to be reflected in our public and private lives. Now, are we going to have more of these anxieties or fewer of these anxieties as we go ahead? Well, I have a very simple, I uh, can't say it's a theorem because it's too uh, naive to be considered anything close uh, to a theorem, but my own view is that as science uh, advances more and more rapidly all, all the time, in particular biomedical science advances more and more rapidly all the time, what, what flows from that? Well, what flows from these discoveries is more and more applications, more and more possible applications. And as for every one of these applications, that's where ethical issues uh, come to bear, not from the science itself, but the applications we make with the science. Since there's going to be more and more applications, there's going to be more and more ethical issues for us to consider. And it seems to me, therefore, that bioethics is a rather good field to locate oneself in. I think there'll be more and more anxieties, more and more concerns. And if I were younger, I might consider retooling myself in this area. But I'm glad to see so many young people who are interested in it and so many uh, leaders in bioethics over the previous generation that are sitting in the front few rows here who have helped us all understand how it is we can deal with these subjects as they come along. So once again, let me welcome you to Princeton. I, in fact, look forward to an era of more and more anxiety, because I think it's going to be more and more productive for us all. and something we can look forward to and not worry about, but it's going to give bioethicists a lot to think about. So thank you all very much for being here. It's a pleasure to welcome you to Princeton.
0: I am now extremely pleased to introduce our first keynote speaker of the conference, Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institutes of Health. Formerly trained as a physical chemist at Yale, Dr. Collins changed professions upon receiving his Ph.D. and enrolled in medical school at the University of North Carolina. After becoming chief resident in internal medicine at Chapel Hill, Dr. Collins returned to Yale to carry out research in human genetics. It was at this time that Dr. Collins developed a method for crossing large stretches of DNA to identify disease genes, a method now called positional cloning. This technique has become a powerful tool for molecular biologists, allowing them to identify disease genes for almost any condition. This strategy allowed Dr. Collins and his colleagues to identify the gene for cystic fibrosis in 1989, the neurofibromatosis gene in 1990, and through a successful collaborative effort, the gene for Huntington disease in 1993. It was also in 1993 that Dr. Collins became the second director of the National Center for Human Genome Research. Slated to finish in 2003, the Human Genome Project plans to map and sequence all of the 80,000 genes in the human genome. THIS PROJECT IS ALREADY TRANSFORMING THE WAY PEOPLE LOOK AT MEDICINE, MEDICAL RESEARCH, AND EVEN ENVIRONMENTAL PROBLEMS. BECAUSE OF THE MOMENTOUS IMPLICATIONS FOR BOTH INDIVIDUALS AND SOCIETY, THE HUMAN GENOME PROJECT HAS SINCE ITS INCEPTION BEEN AWARE OF THE IMPORTANCE OF ANALYSING THE ETHICAL, LEGAL, AND SOCIAL IMPLICATIONS OF GENETIC KNOWLEDGE. THIS AWARENESS WILL HELP ENSURE THAT THIS POWERFUL SCIENCE IS APPLIED WITHIN A SOCIAL AND POLITICAL FRAMEWORK DEVELOPED THROUGH PUBLIC DISCOURSE. As well as directing this international gene sequencing effort, Dr. Collins continues with his own research at the NIH, leading one of the premier research units in human genetics in the country. He currently explores the molecular genetics of breast cancer, prostate cancer, adult onset diabetes, and other disorders. It is now my great pleasure to present Dr. Francis Collins.
2: Thank you very much, and good morning, everyone. It's a particular pleasure to come to a conference of this sort that has been organized, planned, and uh, so far executed flawlessly uh, by a large team of students uh, whose dedication is apparent in every way in terms of the way that they have thought about what they wanted to accomplish in terms of the way they've reached out to schools all over this country uh, to bring in students uh, from many different states and uh, to have this exciting opportunity for these two days to mix together and debate some of the most interesting and challenging issues uh, that confront us in this field of bioethics which is moving so rapidly because the science is moving uh, moving it along uh, it's particularly uh, nice to be preceded at the podium uh, by Harold Shapiro your president and no one mentioned yet but I will uh, that uh, his role right now is particularly critical in this endeavor As chairman of the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, the President's Commission on this topic, uh, Dr. Shapiro stands in a particularly critical place in trying to shepherd along uh, the discussion of a variety of topics, from cloning to human subjects uh, considerations to the use of archived samples uh, for biological research, and has done so with great skill. Uh, In a uh, circumstance where it uh, certainly rivals the description of herding cats, at times he does manage, it seems, to move this enterprise forward in a very effective way. And we all, I think, in this country owe him a debt of gratitude for the way that he has devoted countless hours and applied his remarkable leadership skills uh, to this issue. And we look forward to hearing what you're uh, going to come up with about stem cells here in another couple of months, too. Uh So I'm not a bioethicist, but maybe I'm an animal model. (laughs) Having uh, come up uh, through, as you heard, uh, various aspects of science from physical chemistry to medicine to genetics, uh, my encounter with bioethics has largely been uh, from the perspective of somebody who is carried away with enthusiasm about the science and the opportunities that it presents but then tormented a bit about the ways in which this information, incredibly valuable though it is, might also be misused. In my role now as director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, I find I spend a very large fraction of my time on these issues, uh, whether it is uh, by uh, trying to make sure that our grants program and ethical, legal, and social issues is moving vigorously ahead, or whether it's interacting with the Congress about the policy issues that need to be dealt with and I'll have a few things to say about that interface. It's one thing to have a good bioethics debate. It's another thing to actually get the conclusions of that debate implemented uh, through a political process, which is anything but predictable. Uh, And yet I find myself in the midst of that on a regular basis, which is uh, both exhilarating and at times a bit frustrating. Uh, I passed a newsstand at the 7-Eleven a couple of weeks ago and uh, realized that there on the newsstand was the answer to some of my uh, frustrations because the Weekly World News uh, had announced that uh, 12 members of the U.S. Senate were actually aliens. (coughs) (laughs) And there are days where that seems like a very accurate description. So what I want to do in my presentation, and I hope to leave plenty of time for questions at the end because that will be the most fun part of this, uh, is to give you a quick portrait of where the Human Genome Project stands and where we think we're going in the next four or five years, and then a series of issues that I think are particularly pressing uh, to deal with uh, that I hope will be uh, the subject of much discussion during this two-day meeting. So if we could have the slides on. This is just by way of introduction. Obviously, you can see that if Time Magazine says it, it must be true. So medicine does seem to be driven these days by the anticipation that genetics is going to change everything, and I couldn't agree more. Let me start with a couple of principles which are probably familiar to many, but maybe not quite everybody is bought into this, and it's probably good that we all start off on the same page. One of these is that genetics is not to be thought of as the study of relatively rare disorders that occur in somebody else's family. Uh, This is about all of us, because virtually every disease that you can think of, except some cases of trauma, and probably not all, uh, have a genetic component. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not arguing that everything is predetermined by your DNA sequence, uh, what I am arguing is that we are all predisposed in certain ways by DNA sequences we've inherited, which then interact with the environment, and let's not forget free will in here either, uh, to result or not result in the appearance of a particular disorder. And, of course, the amount of the contribution quantitatively can be quite different from one disease to the next For cystic fibrosis, for instance, we all know that if you've inherited two misspelled copies of that gene on chromosome 7, you're going to get CF. But the severity of your illness may be determined considerably by what kind of medical care you get uh, and uh, what kind of nutrition you have and so on. Most of the common diseases, which are currently the scourge of Western civilization, are rather like adult-onset diabetes, where there are hereditary factors that contribute, but they are numerous and relatively weak individually, And then there are environmental factors, some identified, some not, uh, that play into this. And this is right now where much of the frontier of genetics is pointing itself to try to unravel that mystery. And we shall, as I'll go into, probably over the course of the next four or five years, identify the major contributing genes for common diseases. Even an infectious disease like AIDS, which you may argue doesn't belong here, We now know that host factors that can play a significant role in determining the outcome of a particular exposure uh, are obviously very important uh, to the course of an illness, uh, even if it's caused by an exogenous agent. So keep that in mind. Virtually every disease, uh, genetics, has some relevance, uh, considerable relevance, in fact. Second principle, which sort of goes along with this, is I'm sorry to tell you that even here at Princeton, there are no perfect genetic specimens. (laughs) Maybe at Yale, but no. no, uh, Somebody from Yale, thank you. Uh, No, I'm afraid that all of us are walking around with a certain number of flaws in our DNA sequence, and I don't know if this number is right. Uh, This is a wild guess based upon some very imperfect information, but you can be darn sure the answer isn't zero. Uh, and it's probably somewhere in this order of magnitude, the number of things that are wrong with your DNA that place you at risk for something. And many of those you'll never find out about because you won't have the environmental exposure or the combination of genetic risks uh, or something else will get you first. Uh, but one or two of these, uh, probably during your lifetime, maybe more, will rear its head and will get you into trouble. And one of the big debates that's going on right now that sort of overarches much of what I'm saying is, do you want to know this? If I set up my table out here at the coffee break and offered to tell you what your set of genetic flaws is by next week, would you sign up? Would you say, yeah, sure, that'd be useful. I'd like to have that information. Or would you say, no, thanks. Unless you can offer me something to change the outcome, I'd just as soon not look into this cloudy crystal ball because much of this information is going to be imperfect anyway. I think the answers to those questions are complicated and individual, and we need to preserve that individuality of the response. And yet, from the point of view of medicine, we need to maximize the likelihood that for people interested in that information, we're able to give it to them in a way where it doesn't put them at risk of discrimination. And also, we need to hurry up and figure out what to offer people at high risk in the way of interventions that will reduce those risks, For a very long list of diseases, and that's much of what is going on right now in molecular biology and genetic medicine. Now, if something is uh, possessed of a heritable contribution, and I've just argued that virtually every disease is, that means we need to understand this molecule or we'll never really get to the bottom of it. So the basic justification then for the genome project when it was first initiated was largely a medical one, although there's lots of other reasons to do this project in terms of understanding biology, which are enormously compelling. And the ways in which it will explain to us aspects of evolution that we could never understand without this information uh, are also very compelling. But for the public who's paying for it, Uh, They are largely uh, interested in seeing this enterprise move forward so that we can figure out the causes of illness and come up with better ways to treat and even cure. So the Genome Project was born back in 1990. So we're approaching a 10-year point. I guess we will be at that point next October. And this project was carefully designed after about four or five years of intense debate about whether it was a good thing or not. And the initial goals were very explicitly stated. And I won't go through them in any particular uh, detail. One of the important issues that was dealt with early on was the recognition that the advances that would come out of such a focused effort to understand the human genome were undoubtedly going to accelerate the dilemmas that faced us in the ethical, legal, and social arena. And so from the very beginning, uh, a proportion of the budget, currently about 5%, has been devoted to research into these LC issues. And many of those uh, are topics we'll be talking about in the next couple of days. This, I think, has been a very interesting and largely successful experiment. We've never done this before, where we tried to anticipate the consequences of a scientific revolution before it really got fully underway, as opposed to waiting until all of a sudden there's a crisis and you have to marshal your resources and try to figure out what to do. And as a consequence of this project, we are now, I think, blessed with a wonderful body of scientific scholarship, which will inform our debates here for the next couple of days, with a wonderful cohort of uh, supremely uh, well uh, informed and articulate participants in that debate, because at the moment, this is the largest source of funding for bioethics research since the history of the planet began. And there's nothing like that to sort of draw investigators into issues, and we're, Uh, intentional about that and delighted with the outcome. So we do now have, I think, a matured circumstance where the LC issues that surround the Genome Project have come from the sort of 1990 era where there were a lot of conferences where issues that were really a little off the mark uh, used up a lot of people's time to the point now where the focus has been much more tightly set, and that's a good thing. Now, the Genome Project has been organized in such a way that it facilitates this process of identifying genes that are responsible for disease. And that is now becoming a very speedy uh, activity, uh, to be sure. Back in the 1980s, working on cystic fibrosis, uh, it took my group, working with the Toronto uh, group, 10 years uh, to go from the left to the right of this slide uh, for that one single gene. Uh, For Parkinson's disease, uh, probably a more challenging problem because of its lack of inherited characteristics in most affected individuals, this whole process uh, was accomplished in less than a year. Uh, This happened about two years ago in uh, one of the intramural laboratories of the Genome Institute uh, by Bob Nussbaum. Basically what they did was to find a family, a very large one, where Parkinson's disease was being inherited in what appeared to be a fairly dominant fashion with early onset. The genetic maps produced by the Genome Project in its first three or four years allow you to take DNA samples from such families and test them with these bits of DNA that vary from one person to the next in order to look for such a bit of DNA that tends to predict who got Parkinson's disease and who didn't. And if you find one, then that tells you the gene is nearby. And if you have enough of these markers, The gene can't hide from your analysis, and you will ultimately come up with a linkage, which is to say your marker is linked to the disease gene. And that was done for this particular set of Parkinson's families in the space of only nine days, a process that used to take several years. That allowed them to say the gene was on chromosome 4. Then they went to the physical maps that have been produced by the Genome Project in the first five or six years, and were able to identify a series of cloned fragments of human DNA that encompassed the area of interest. Then they went to the web and looked at the gene map, which is a list of which transcripts have been placed in particular precise locations on chromosomes. And among that list, they identified one of them called alpha-synuclein, which looked like an interesting candidate because it was known to be expressed in the brain. And on sequencing that, they found that a simple substitution of an A, where there should have been a G, was found in all the affected individuals, and we now are quite confident that is the cause of Parkinson's disease in these families. Let me hasten to say that most people with Parkinson's disease do not have that mutation. This is a relatively rare cause, but this same protein seems to be involved in a way that causes it to be unstable and to deposit in the neurons of the brain that die in this disease. So by the genetic analysis of an unusual family, we have uncovered a general paradigm, a pathway that is involved in this process. All of this enterprise, again, took about nine months, much of the work uh, being done on the computer because the databases that the Genome Project has produced are now out there for everybody to use. So we're doing pretty well in terms of accelerating this process, but these investigators still had to do quite a bit of hard work, and they had to be a little bit lucky that the gene that they were hunting for was already in that database, and we at the present time have about half the genes on the gene map, and we need to do better than that. We have made a number of other accomplishments in the last year or so, and I'll just quickly point to one because I think, uh, historically, this is a pretty significant moment that happened, as you can see from this cover of Science Magazine, about two months ago. And that was the completion of the genome sequence of the first animal that has ever been studied in this way, this uh, simple-looking but elegant uh, roundworm called C. elegans, the little worm that's made a big splash here uh this particular worm has a genome size of 97 million base pairs encoded within those base pairs are about 19,000 genes uh this is an animal which does a lot of the things that we do it has a sensation it has a digestive tract it reproduces uh, often with itself but that's okay it has a reproductive system that's an interesting model uh, for uh, all sorts of higher animals Uh, It it, uh, has a neurologic system, which we understand in great detail, having mapped the connections of all of its neurons. And so it is a prime uh, topic uh, for study by people interested in developmental biology. And we now have its genome in front of us. Now, let me say, this is a very large and difficult endeavor to do this. So that project, which was largely done at St. Louis in the Washington University Genome Sequencing Center, and uh, by their colleagues at the Sanger Center in Cambridge, England, involved a very large number of folks. Many of these are, in fact, uh, young scientists who are doing this uh, to gain experience, and many of them will go on to other careers in science. I put this up here partly uh, to tell you that this is a very human endeavor and a very uh, personnel-intense endeavor in some ways. But also, just for a little amusing sidelight, notice this person whose uh, name is highlighted there Philip Ozersky is the guy who caught the 70th home run ball that Mark McGuire hit a little while back <laughs> and uh, became suddenly $3 million richer, <laughs> although there's a nice post-trip to that story that he seems to have decided to give a fair amount of that money away and to continue carrying out research in the WashU Genome Center because he and his girlfriend who also work there believe that that's the most important contribution they could make right now, and I think they're right. So what are we doing as far as the future of the Genome Project, having come to this point and exceeded every milestone that has been set, uh, what are we doing about the next phase? Well, we have this series of five-year plans. We depend heavily upon input from the scientific community uh, to help us decide what kind of ambitious, audacious goals we ought to set for the next interval. Uh, And some of those folks are here in the room. Shirley Tillman, in particular, has been a valued and very effective advisor to the Genome Project from the outset. Uh, The Genome Issue of Science, published back in October, outlined the goals uh, for the next five years. And I don't have time to go into all eight of them. Obviously, the one that's attracted the most attention is, are we going to get the sequence done? And uh, this proverb is sort of a nice uh, thing to uh, point to. If you're going to understand the genome, begin with the sequence. So how are we doing? Well, at the moment, as of last Friday, I don't know about today's result, about 11 o'clock, my uh, computer will have an automatic update on this number, but as of last Friday, there were 280 million base pairs of finished human sequence sitting in public databases produced by the international sequencing effort. Uh, So that's about 9% of the genome is done, finished, completed, at an accuracy of no more mistakes than one in 10,000. Uh, so it's a highly uh, valuable quality product. And about another 6 or 7% is very close to being finished, sort of in the last phases. So if you're looking for a particular kind of sequence, there's increasingly a pretty good likelihood you're going to find it already there waiting for you. But how long is it going to take to get this done? We initially said not, uh, 2005 would be the earliest you could contemplate finishing the three billion base pairs of the human genome. Well, we've changed that goal in just in the last several months as a consequence of the planning process, and particularly driven by the fact that we've now gained a considerable amount of experience doing this with pilot projects that tell us we can do it faster and somewhat cheaper than we had thought. And so the old plan, as you can see, of finishing the sequence in 2005 has now been superseded by a goal of finishing in 2003, and furthermore, to produce a couple of years ahead of that a working draft of the genome, which would cover 90 percent of the sequence and would be extremely valuable to scientists right now, who are hungry for this information, uh, to move their own research along. Uh, and so this goal, which is an, indeed a stretch of the capacities of the publicly funded effort, was announced last October. And has been very well received, and we are now in the phase of achieving the kind of ramp up necessary to do this. And given what's happened even in the last few months with advances in technology, I'm quite optimistic we'll meet these goals, and I might even hazard a guess that we'll beat them. Whose genome are we sequencing? Is a question that people often ask. If there are no perfect genomes, then uh, who are we going to pick here? Well, again, I'd ask you. Would it? you want it to be yours? It might be kind of cool to have your sequence be sort of the reference, although you got to think about the fact that people are going to uncover some things about you, and do you want that on the Internet for all the world to see for all time, for your health insurance company to notice that you're maybe not such a good risk after all? Uh, so, in fact, after a considerable debate about this, uh, the conclusion was reached that the sequencing ought to be done on individuals whose identity would remain anonymous. And so volunteers who gave informed consent and answered a newspaper ad in a northeastern city uh, came forward, gave DNA samples, and those were turned into libraries. The identities were stripped off, and even the people who donated don't know for sure whether their sequence is being used or not, because there were a lot more volunteers than we actually needed. So it will not be known whose sequence it is. And it almost doesn't matter. 99.9% of our sequence is identical. And as I'll come to in a minute, we have a separate part of the genome project that's focused on the 0.1%. And so the sequencing itself is largely being done uh, to look at the foundation structure of the part that we all share, which is, after all, most of it. Now, this brings me to another legal, ethical, social issue, which is... What about access to this information? Is the genome of human beings, the book of life, uh, going to be offered up in a way that any scientist in any country at any time can utilize it freely, or will it be balkanized, broken up into bits and pieces, which you can only have access to if you are willing to pay a certain subscription fee or a license, or perhaps, worse yet, uh, be kept secret where nobody can see it unless they are sort of part of a particular business plan? Many of us believe that the sequence of human beings is such a profoundly central, important uh, aspect of who we are, and that the value of that sequence is greatest if access is uh, obtainable to it in a free and unfettered way, would argue that large-scale patenting of whole genomes is really something to be discouraged. Now, let me hasten to say that I am not one of those who thinks that patenting genes is always a bad thing. If you have discovered a gene, as say uh, Genentech did with the uh, gene called TPA, uh, which you know is going to turn into a pharmaceutical, uh, which has a high likelihood of benefiting people with heart attacks or strokes, the ability to patent that gene and use that information to turn this into a drug and know that your competition is not going to take your market away the first day you go on the market after having invested half a billion dollars to produce that drug. That is probably consonant with the original plans of Benjamin Franklin and others who wrote our U.S. patent laws. But I think the bar ought to be set pretty high as far as the utility required about a particular gene sequence before you are given uh, the ability to claim that as a composition of matter that you then have rights to and that others may not use without getting a license from you. And I regret to say that the bar increasingly seems to be slipping downward And the Patent and Trademark Office seems willing to allow patents on sequence whose function has not been determined uh, because they believe uh, that these fit the the letter of the law in terms of how patent law was written, largely for other reasons. And we are facing now with genomic sequence uh, the same kinds of gold rushes that were happening four or five years ago with the expressed part of the sequence, the ESTs as they're called, uh, there has been a great deal of interest in the private sector in the last year in setting up efforts to sequence the human genome uh, using private dollars. And, of course, they are private dollars, so a profit has to be obtained. Part of the profit motive is to patent parts of the genome that appear to be particularly interesting and perhaps also to file for intellectual property protection on the variations that are discovered, which may turn out to be valuable properties as well. And I think we have to very carefully move into this arena of the commodification of the human genome. Uh, Again, I am not expressing uh, a notion that patenting is always a bad thing when it comes to a gene. I think in some instances it's a very good thing. But when you're talking about large blocks of chromosomes, uh, for someone to have the ability to deny access uh, to the free use of such information doesn't seem to me like it benefits the public. I mean, we are talking about a road here from basic science discoveries towards a product. That is a sort of road of discovery that goes on for virtually every field. I think we're all comfortable with the idea that putting toll booths uh, at the end of that road in order to incent people to maintain the road so that you end up with the products that the public wants is reasonable what is less reasonable is to put them right down at the beginning, a very large number of them, so that the road to discovery becomes rather unattractive. And that's the thing we have to worry about when we're talking about very basic information like human genome sequence. Now let me move on to another part of the genome project which I think has profound scientific and ethical consequences, and that is a brand new goal of this project, which was not there in the last plan, a few years ago, but is now very prominently mentioned in the new five-year plan, and that is to try to not only get this basic sequence of 99.9 percent that we all share, but to also catalog the variation. And by cataloging the variation, I mean go out and find the roughly one in a 1,000 base pairs that has a common difference between individuals, where you might have a G and I might have a T. Now, why do we care about that part? Well, let's think about how far we've come and how far we haven't come in understanding the genetic contributions to common illnesses. Obviously, we have had some stunning breakthroughs in some arenas, and some of them are listed on this slide, where somebody working hard using the Genome Project's tools has come up with an explanation for families where a particular common illness is occurring at very high frequency So BRCA1 and 2, for instance, uh, the two genes that have been uncovered, which play a significant role in breast and ovarian cancer in families that have lots of early onset cases, still only account for about 5 percent of individuals with breast cancer. We know there are hereditary factors in the other 95 percent, but we haven't identified them yet. Similarly for diabetes, uh, there are uh, subsets of that illness where the disease is strongly heritable in a dominant fashion and it comes on fairly early called Modi 1, 2, and 3, and now there's a 4 and 5, but together they only account for about 3 to 5 percent of the disease, and the rest of the genetic contributions to adult onset diabetes remain obscure. For colon cancer, about 5% of the disease comes about in families where people have mutated copies of DNA mismatch repair genes, giving rise to a syndrome we call hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. And that has been a fascinating story, and those are families where early detection is clearly valuable, and so offering testing to individuals at risk is becoming a fairly positive experience. But it still only accounts for a minority of the disease, and I already mentioned Parkinson's disease How are we going to get past this ability to only understand the strongly inherited, almost Mendelian forms of common illness and move on to understand the causes of the disease in the majority of people who are affected? Well, we have seen progress made on some of those fronts. I won't go through each of these examples. The most famous one and probably the most uh, well-characterized one is Alzheimer's disease, where a variant in the gene called APOE, the one called APOE4, which 15% of chromosomes carry this variant, increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease significantly, but in a fashion that would not be called Mendelian by anybody's guess, and which would have been very difficult to uncover using the traditional methods that have succeeded in the more Mendelian types of inheritance. Uh, This particular uh, variant was discovered because somebody had a hunch, and they followed up on that hunch, and sure enough, could show there was an association of having E4 and having Alzheimer's disease. Uh, It would have been very difficult to do this if they had not already had the hunch. So how can we get beyond the point of having to have a lucky guess to being able to survey the whole genome for these relatively weaker, but quantitatively even more important variants that contribute to illness? Well, if we could identify a large number of single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, as they're called, which is the common kind of variation that you find in the genome, where some people have a T and some people have a C in a particular position, uh, we ought to be able to move on to a circumstance where with very large numbers of such markers, such SNPs, and a significant number of DNA samples from affected and unaffected individuals, you could simply look for association patterns. So here's an example of how you might do that. If these are 10 people affected with diabetes and these are 10 unaffecteds and you're looking at a particular SNP in gene A, which I've color-coded here, you would conclude from this result that there's no correlation and you wouldn't be so interested in this SNP as far as its contribution to diabetes. But over here, when you do the experiment, you find that the affected individuals have a dramatically different distribution than the unaffecteds, And that would cause you to suspect that gene B may very well be involved in this disease. Up until now, again, we've only been able to do this for genes where we had a hunch. But there are 80,000 genes out there, and oftentimes our hunches are wrong. Wouldn't it be nice to do this in a systematic way? Well, that is now a specific goal of the Genome Project. And within two or three years, we will have hundreds of thousands of these SNPs. And this kind of analysis will begin to become possible. And that is going to move us in a rather quantum way into the ability to identify individual risks for common illnesses at a level that we could not have previously imagined using the methods that have been available up until now. Another consequence of this, which I think is going to be one of the most interesting and thorny uh, ethical uh, issues and social issues that comes out of developing this catalog of variation, is that we will learn a lot about ourselves and our relatedness to each other, And one of the things that we will learn is, in fact, already known but sort of a well-kept secret outside a certain small subset of the scientific community, and that is that separation of human populations into precisely defined racial categories is scientifically unjustifiable. The notion that populations or ethnic groups have precise boundaries around them and that there's no blurring of those boundaries is something that we do socially but is scientifically completely without a basis. And as scientists, I worry that we sometimes feed into those constructs as if they were scientific, when in fact they are primarily social and cultural. Now, some people will welcome uh, this deconstruction of those boundaries from the scientific point of view, and others will resist it. And the consequences of this very large amount of information about human variation have to be thought about in terms of our self-identities and our group identities Uh, I'm a bit of an optimist, and I believe that this actually will be a profoundly positive uh, occurrence in the history of the science of genetics. Uh, But there are those uh, who are worried it will have just the opposite effect. We are going to turn out to be all peas in the same pod, but are we ready for that? So the Genome Project is largely, you can think of, providing power tools. That's what we do. Uh, We try to make these tools available to anybody who wants them. We try to put up some safety glasses, that's the ELSI program, so people don't hurt themselves with these power tools. And they consist of things like the human genome sequence, the catalog of variation, the study of model organisms. And we're about to see launched, uh, particularly after a meeting uh, held here in Princeton just a month ago, the sequencing of the laboratory mouse as another new focus of the Genome Project, something we thought we couldn't get to for years, is now starting this year. And we hope to have at least a draft sequence of the mouse, by 2003, uh, which is vastly ahead of the uh, previously expected uh, timetable. We also are very interested in encouraging technologies to allow the use of this information, and you'll hear more about that, no doubt, tomorrow from Steve Fodor. And bioinformatics is critical to using this vast amount of data and not just drowning in it. So that's what we are trying to do, is provide that so that everybody working in biomedical research can make the most of it and can move down this chart, which is really what we want to see happen for genetic medicine over the course of the coming years. Much of what I've been talking about is the top part of this chart, where you identify a disease with a genetic component, you use those power tools to find the gene, map it, ultimately clone it, and identify the sequence difference that you find in affected. That then gets you on the path towards the medical application. And this is also the point at which you realize, if you haven't already, that genetic knowledge is not a moral thing. It is information. But the uses that you put it to can have moral consequences. And it's best to think of those ahead of time. So, for instance, uh, thinking about how this goes, let's quickly think about breast cancer and imagine that we are now in the circumstance. In fact, we are, where we know a fair amount about the hereditary characteristics in that illness, And you're talking to this family that's come in to ask you uh, what they should be doing about their circumstances. And the person who's most interested in seeking your advice is this woman, because she has watched her aunt die of breast cancer in her late 30s, her mother die of ovarian cancer in her 40s, and now her sister has just been diagnosed with breast cancer at 37. And this is a real family from the Baltimore area. And she is wondering, therefore, what about me? Am I at risk as well? And at her age of 32, she's already been to the surgeon to talk about the possibility of prophylactic mastectomy, recognizing that that might be one of the ways to reduce her risk of developing the same disease that her sister now has. But, of course, this is a circumstance which 10 years ago you could have quoted sort of empirical statistics. Now you can actually go and see, is there a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in this family? And in fact, after some discussion with the genetic counselor, this family decided to proceed, and this woman donated a blood sample, which was tested, and sure enough, she has a mutation in BRCA1. So now this woman is faced with the question of does she want to find out her own status? Those of you who are comfortable with uh, genetics will immediately know her risk is 50% of having inherited that same mutation uh, from her mother. And what if she has? What does that mean? Will she definitely get breast cancer? Will she get ovarian cancer? Those numbers are still a little squishy, but it seems that somebody with such a mutation has a risk of breast cancer somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 80 percent and a risk of ovarian cancer somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 40 percent. And those are broad ranges and not very satisfying ranges, and all of this points out to you how much research has to be done to answer each one of these questions but as Mark Twain said, supposing is good, knowing is better. We really have to be sure that that research is getting done after these genes are identified, and you don't just sort of stop there with imperfect information. So, in fact, she decided to go out and find out her status, and I'm happy to say she turned out to be mutation negative. What if she had been positive? What then? Where do we go on our diagram here? Well. One of the places you can go, if the opportunity exists, is to preventive medicine. And I want to say a bit about this, because I think this is an enormously exciting chapter uh, that's coming along, where the ability to identify individual risks allows the design of an individualized program of preventive medicine for healthy people to keep them from becoming ill. Right now, we say that preventive medicine is really important, And we have all these recommendations that are offered up in a one-size-fits-all fashion uh, to people who largely ignore us uh, because they've concluded that all of those things probably aren't going to happen to them. But if you have an individualized uh, prescription of what is going to be most likely beneficial for that person, I suspect you'll get a lot more uh, attention being paid uh, to those uh, recommendations. If she had turned out to be positive for BRCA1, well, there are preventive medicines. Unfortunately, they're, most of them, pretty drastic, the surgery that I mentioned. Tamoxifen, maybe, will move into this uh, realm, but we still don't know for sure whether tamoxifen has benefit to women with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. Hopefully, that will be learned in the next year. There's this whole field of pharmacogenomics, which is bursting on the scene, with every pharmaceutical company now having a division to study this. And this is the idea that there ought to be ways of predicting why some people respond better than others to a certain drug in a certain circumstance. And much of that difference in response may well be due to host factors that are genetically encoded. And even the occasional toxic reaction, uh, unexpected side effect, might also be predictable on the basis of genetic analysis. So it is very likely that at least for some drugs in the next decade, prior to prescribing the drug, a genetic test will be done to see whether or not that is the right drug for that person. This will allow us to subset illnesses and perhaps take things like diabetes, which we currently use to include a whole host of physiological abnormalities, and divide it up into subsets, each of which would have a different pharmacological intervention. And that, I think, is a good thing. That increases the likelihood of success. Ultimately, of course, we want to get down here to the therapeutic outcomes. And let me say, when we're there, a lot of the ethical dilemmas that currently bedevil us will get much better. You don't have to worry so much about the likelihood that the health insurance company is going to discriminate against the individual for having a particular predisposition if there's a simple and inexpensive cure for that illness. But reality would tell you that for many illnesses, we're going to be living in this interval here, this window, for the next several years, and the urgency, therefore, of addressing some of the questions that I want to put in front of you are, uh, is really very high. So let's address a couple of those. First of all, and this is the one that's most on the mind of the public, do you think it is just for somebody who had no control over their DNA sequence, and if you did, I hope you'll let me know how, to have that sequence information used against them while they're still healthy to deny them access to health care. Is that just? I think most people looking at the situation would say no. If health care is not a privilege but a right, then to have that right taken away by something over which you have no control while you are still a healthy individual does not seem to be just. Furthermore, it doesn't seem to be workable in the long run because if we're all in the same boat here, if we're all walking around with all those glitches and we uh, encourage a system uh, where those are used to try to weed out uh, the people who are at high risk, uh, who will be left? We're all at high risk for something. So we have to solve this problem. We have not solved it quite. Uh, Articles like this are still being written. This is a woman with a BRCA1 mutation uh, talking about the difficulties that she's had waiting on Congress, it says down here, uh, which is what we are still doing. Now, there is some sign, some considerable sign of progress, and I don't mean to portray this in an overly gloomy way, because compared to where we were five years ago, uh, this has come an enormous distance. And I have to say, most of the credit for that uh, goes to the hard work of people who are concerned about these LC issues and who have done good research published good papers about the consequences. Workshops have been held, particularly good ones, with the uh, National Breast Cancer Coalition, a group of activists who are very involved in seeing this uh, problem solved. And out of that have come recommendations published in respectable journals uh, of exactly what needs to be done, right down to the legislative language that ought to go into appropriate bills. And we did have, two years ago, with the passage of the Kassebaum-Kennedy bill, Protection is now provided against discrimination on the basis of genetic information if you're in a group plan. And that's huge because a lot of people are in group plans. Most people who are covered at all are in group plans. But there's still loopholes here. And so these various individuals over the last year and a half have been making statements about the need to do something about this. Uh, And uh, those are rather encouraging. You can see here, I won't read them for you, words from the president, from the vice president, And from the physician, uh, the only physician in the Senate, uh, Senator Bill Frist, uh, former heart transplant surgeon and chair of the relevant committee in the Senate that has jurisdiction over this matter, all of them saying, we're going to do something about this. But last year, it didn't happen, despite the predictions that it would. On the other hand, not much happened last year in the Congress, at least not after August, as you're no doubt aware. There are encouraging signs in the last month since the Congress came back to town that this may well be the year where the loopholes that remain in discrimination for health insurance and for employment will get covered by effective, well-worded federal legislation. And I am certainly hoping that will be the case and encouraging any of you who have the chance to influence that system uh, to do so now, because this is a golden opportunity. There's support for this on both sides of the aisle in both houses, and as you can see from the administration, we just need to get it done. Not only do we need to be sure that discrimination is not occurring, we have this even messier topic of privacy of medical records. And that applies to genetics, but of course it applies to everything in the medical record. And this is one also which the Congress is wrestling with, with a deadline of August of this year looming, by which they are supposed to have passed legislation and have it signed by the President on medical records Otherwise, uh, regulations that have already been drafted by Secretary Shalala will kick in. And many of the folks in the other party don't like her regulations, so it's likely they're going to try to do something uh, by August. And I just hope and pray that they don't do it uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning in a smoke-filled room in a way that covers a whole lot of uh, special constituencies and fails to really take care of the problem in an effective way. Second question, will we figure out how to shepherd all of these new genetic tests that I'm predicting will mushroom around us from the research arena into clinical practice, or will we have the whole process driven by this particular commodity, uh, which is a reality? I mean, there are many laboratories setting up to do genetic testing on a large scale, and they're obviously in the business of making money, and so it is in their best interest to market their wares. But how do you protect the public against premature introduction of tests whose clinical validity has not yet been established? This is a thorny problem, and it's already a problem in some instances. This is an advertisement in a major northeastern city. Uh, I won't expect you to be able to read it. Just notice the caption here, an important message, genetic testing for breast cancer in Jewish women. There happens to be a variant in the uh, BRCA1 gene. In fact, there are three variants in BRCA1 and 2 that are particularly common in Jewish women, about two and a half percent of Jewish women will have one of these. This particular advertisement encourages people to come in for testing, regardless of whether or not they have a family history, if they self-identify as an Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, The value of finding out this information in the absence of a family history has not been established, and yet here is an advertisement going straight to the consumer in in a newspaper. And guess who is putting this advertisement in the paper? Is this a lab company? No, actually, in this case, this is a general surgeon whose major practice is mastectomies. Now, it's chilling. Are we going to uh, sort of look the other way and conclude, well, you know, private enterprise is what it is, or do genetic tests, just like drugs, need some oversight to make sure that they're not prematurely introduced before the benefits and the risks have been evaluated? I would argue we need to do that. The Task Force on Genetic Testing, uh, which was convened by the NIH and the Department of Energy, uh, met for two years to consider these thorny issues and came out with this report now about a year and a half ago. And uh, it's a very worthwhile uh, document to look through. And one of their recommendations was that we need to have an advisory committee at the level of Secretary Shalala to consider the oversight of genetic testing and to advise the FDA and the CDC and other federal agencies about what role they should be playing in overseeing such introductions. And this committee is likely to have its members announced in the next month, uh, I would guess, by the way the process has been moving forward. So it will be a very interesting group uh, to watch. They are setting up their enterprise very carefully so as not to overlap with the National Bioethics Advisory Commission uh, which President Shapiro chairs, uh, this particular committee will focus very much on the nuts and bolts of agency involvement in oversight and regulation. And even though that sounds sort of like stiff bureaucratic stuff, uh, somebody needs to think about it. A, a serious issue for all of us, but particularly for healthcare providers, is: Is anybody going to know what this stuff means? If you're talking about genetic tests that are not black and white, they're not going to say you're definitely going to get this disease or you're definitely not. They're going to be relative risks. Uh, Who's going to understand this well enough to explain it to a largely unprepared uh, population, some of whom are out there taking pills like this? (coughs) That sort of makes you sober, doesn't it, to realize this stuff sells extremely well in health food stores and people taking it. Probably imagine that they're doing gene therapy or something. And the healthcare professionals are themselves, while maybe not taking this stuff, not much better prepared. Most physicians have not had a single hour of instruction in genetics, and yet they're going to be in the front lines of being the handlers of the genetic revolution. Nurses, likewise, are unprepared for this. Uh, there is now this National Coalition for Health Professional Education and Genetics, which we have organized with the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association to try to, in a very fast track, promote this kind of education and access to information. Uh, but we're going to have to work very fast uh, to get this uh, ready uh, for the coming onslaught uh, of genetic uh, medicine finding its way into primary care. Getting more philosophical... One of the things that disturbs me uh, is that in our uh, rush of enthusiasm, and I certainly share that rush of enthusiasm, uh, that genetics is going to unravel a lot of mysteries that have previously been very frustrating to understand. We will begin subtly uh, to think in our own minds, and the public will get this message through our statements and particularly from the media, and I look forward to the panel this afternoon on that topic. Uh, that, in fact, genes are us, that everything about you, from what you had for breakfast this morning uh, to uh, who you might go out with next week, is all predetermined by your DNA sequence, and you are a hapless victim of A, C, G, and T, and nothing else. And uh, you don't have to look too far to see such images (coughs) uh, adorning the covers of major magazines that are fairly credible. This is not the weekly world news. This is US News and World Report. Uh, this one is a particular popular one. The past year, <laughs> <laughs> this is Time Magazine uh, announcing, in case you were feeling guilty about that little indiscretion, that you don't have to anymore. Uh, it was your DNA's fault. Uh, this is ridiculous. Certainly, there are genetic contributions to personality, and we are beginning to unravel those, and uh, to human behavior, and we have glimpses of those, although for the most part, the glimpses are quite rudimentary, and many of the early observations have not been reproducible. But the idea that that statement, that there are genetic contributions, can then be extrapolated to say genetics is all of it, is a very dangerous one, and one we should resist as scientists with every fiber. Uh, because that's not a place you want to go. I like this particular cover because it does seem that's what's being produced in the minds of many of the uh, folks writing about this or hearing about this, that we are all these marionettes uh, whose every move is controlled by these invisible strings made up of our DNA. The hardest question, and the one that I don't have an answer to at all, will we arrive at some sort of consensus about the limits That we are willing to go in applying genetic technology for enhancement of traits. I think as a culture, as a society, uh, we are comfortable with the idea of utilizing genetics to treat terrible diseases. We all believe that that is uh, a a statement of altruism, a desirable thing to do. But do not fool yourself. Uh, Diseases do not sort of come in a severe form and then there's this big gap and then there's traits over there on the other side. Uh, This is a continuum. Uh, lots of people have expressed anxieties about this. You don't have to be a bioethicist to do so. Uh, but here is, I think, a statement that many people would sort of resonate with. Few people will resist the introduction of a genetic technique that eliminates a hereditary disease. It does no apparent harm and prevents much suffering. Yet a large number of genetic improvements taken together will make the human being into an engineered product rather than a free creation of chance or God or whatever, depending on your religious beliefs. You don't have to be a bioethicist to have these concerns. Uh, The person who wrote these words is not at the conference today because he had another responsibility. Uh, This is the Unabomber. That's just by way of uh, pointing out that sort of access to truth uh, is not necessarily unique to those with high moral standards. (coughs) And be careful sort of how you internalize statements before you realize who else is in there with you. Just the same, not to make fun, this is a serious issue. And it is a problem that we cannot, no matter how hard we try, come up with a nice, clean dividing line between diseases over here and traits over there. One person's disease is another person's trait, whether you're talking about manic depressive illness or obesity or a very long list of other things that lie in this middle ground. And how are we going to decide how far to go down this path? Uh, This is an article published uh, in the New York Times and uh, actually the article in the New York Times was a little more positive than the actual uh, article in the scientific press, but it's probably, if this one isn't right, others will be found that are. Uh, This was a report last summer of the first gene which has a variant in it which showed an association with IQ test scores. A very mild one accounted for something like a couple percent of the IQ score variability But still, I am sure that somewhere in this country, somebody read that article and called their genetics clinic to ask whether this test could be included in what was being done next week for their prenatal diagnosis. Are we comfortable moving into that arena uh, where this kind of trait analysis is utilized for the selection of the characteristics of our offspring? Uh, obviously, Lee Silver at uh, this uh, university has written uh, very provocatively about this issue and has argued that it's inevitable that this is going to happen, and perhaps so. But I would argue, on the other hand, we really ought to think long and hard about how far we want to move into this and how fast, lest we find ourselves in a world uh, like this movie that some of you may have seen, although very few did, I gather. there's about four of us that went to see this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, and,
2: In this particular uh, presentation, a society is depicted uh, where genetic testing, uh, in fact genetic selection of the characteristics of one's offspring utilizing pre-implantation diagnosis and a battery of uh, genetic uh, testing, is utilized to maximize the offspring of those who have the resources, and people are then tracked towards particular uh, employments and careers as a consequence of their DNA results. And of course, it's a bit of a difficult movie to buy into because the premise that a society would basically give up all of its civil rights uh, to go along with a, a particular scientific basis uh, that doesn't exist is on every uh, every count uh, disproved by the actions of the people involved. The people with perfect genes are smoking and trying to kill themselves, and the people who have uh, imperfect genes are achieving everything uh, heroically, uh, so... I think uh, that point is well taken. The premise is wrong, but to what extent are we as a society, hopefully enlightened enough to know that the premise is wrong, uh, willing to go down the path of utilizing uh, DNA testing to maximize the trait characteristics of our offspring? Right now, this can still be a theoretical argument because we don't know how to do it, but it will become less than theoretical over the course of the next few years. And I hope by that time we will arrive at some kind of notion about in what ways uh, oversight of this ought to be uh, undertaken or whether we think this is best left to individual couples, giving our, our predilection as a society not to interfere with such uh, critically important and usually private decisions. Again, this is the one I don't have a good answer for, and I'm not sure there shall be one, uh, but it's one we could discuss. So, to sum up, Genome Project is hurtling forward here. You could say that we're hurtling into dangerous territory, But I like this quote from Thucydides. You have to say that very carefully, or I guarantee you, you will trip over it. The bravest are surely those who have the clearest vision of what is before them, glory and danger alike, and yet notwithstanding, go out to meet it. I think that's what we aim to do at this conference. I encourage you to go out and meet every dilemma that we put in front of you, and particularly students. I hope you will be enlivened by these discussions and uh, perhaps... Uh, encouraged uh, by them to spend some of your life uh, trying to help us resolve these things. We need you. The scientists are not in a circumstance where they have special wisdom about the proper utilization of scientific knowledge. They may be able to help produce it, but not necessarily to use it wisely. Uh, For that, we need the investment of a large number of smart people uh, who will dedicate uh, some part of themselves to making sure that this knowledge is utilized to benefit people and not to injure them. Thank you very much. So I would be happy to entertain questions uh, about any of this or anything else. And maybe uh, it would be nice, since there's a people here from lots of different places, if you would say what university you're from, so people know well, from whence you came. Yes? I'm not sure I quite understand which researchers you're talking about. The National Human Genome Research Institute is funded by you. Uh, it's a part of the National Institutes of Health, which is funded by the US government. Uh, we work in concordance with the Department of Energy, also funded by the government, who's doing part of this project, and with international collaborators, uh, particularly in England, funded by a private foundation, the Wellcome Trust. So people working on this enterprise are not deriving uh, personal uh, profit from the sequencing part of this. In fact, we insist that all of our sequencing centers place all of their data in the public domain within 24 hours of the time they have derived it, and that they not file for patent protection on that information. That, of course, is not true in private sector enterprises that are also interested in genomics. And we have a dilemma of both being glad that the private sector is interested in this because there are lots of aspects of the development of products that the public wants that are better done in the private sector, and that should be so. And yet, at the same time, there's this concern about the basic information of the genome itself not being tied up in patent protections and licenses that might be a deterrent to its utilization. Uh, So that dilemma, uh, which I sort of referred to, is all around us. But rest assured that as far as what the government is funding for sequencing, uh, there is no personal profit being gained by those who are carrying out the activity. There was a question here. Ah, there's a microphone. that's being passed around.
3: Great. Um, My name is Christian from Williams College. Um, I just want to ask a question about what you're speaking about towards the end of your, your presentation um, you've given us some excellent ethical and practical issues to consider. Uh, and it seems you know, that as technology progresses, we're forced to take stands on some of these, these issues and, and really you know, find some answers to some of these questions or try. But I want, maybe you could speak a little bit more about who you think, you know, who specifically you think should be making some of these decisions. Because like you said, you know, many of the, much of the general public doesn't really have a specific knowledge of some of these technologies. And uh, you know, as you mentioned at the very end, and just because the scientists do doesn't mean they necessarily have access, um, you know, to any sort of knowledge about truth or right or, or, or whatever. Uh, and and maybe even there might be some sort of vested interest. You know, not to make any presumptions or anything. But who specifically do you think should be, you know, making some of these
2: uh, these difficult decisions? Yeah, that's a fundamentally important question. I think there has to be some recognition of. The value of authoritative bodies that do have broad representation coming together uh, to deliberate in full possession of the facts uh, and coming up with what appears to be the best path forward. In, in that regard, I think the model of uh, the National Bioethics Advisory Commission, appointed by the President of the United States, uh, is a very good one. Uh, the representation on that commission includes a broad range of people, from scientists to ethicists to members of the public uh, who have no particular uh, stake in seeing the science succeed. Uh, And that group, which deliberates in the sunshine, all their meetings are open uh, to anybody who wants to attend, is a very good forum uh, for wrestling with many of the issues we're talking about today and tomorrow. Uh, And it also is placed at a high level, so it has a fair amount of authority although I must say it does not have authority to set policy. Uh, they make recommendations. Uh, the Congress and the administration then have to decide whether to act if we're talking about legislation to allow or not allow something. And then the political system kicks in, and we all know how imperfect that is, but it is our system. Uh, and I guess uh, compared to all the other systems in the world, well, I guess it's a little better, although they are none of them uh, may be what we'd hope for. The international aspects of this have to be considered. You could have a certain conclusion in one country that's wildly discordant from another, and as increasingly we are a global village, how does that work? And there is an interest in having such fora come together. UNESCO recently passed a a, uh, set of articles about uh, the genome and its uh, appropriate utilization, which I think was a good step forward in in the right direction. But there needs to be more of that on the international scene, or we might find ourselves in quite a cacophony of conflicting conclusions.
1: Adam from Brandeis University. A lot of, of, of what has been said so far has implied that the field of biomedical ethics is sort of dragged along by advances in the science. That is, the more we know about genetics, the more ethical issues are raised. But obviously, I think people are kind of letting their imaginations go beyond the capacity, capacities of the science. I think t- trait enhancements are a good example of that. Even if we knew an intelligence gene, we'd have no idea how to perform a trait enhancement, but people start wondering you know, what the ethical issues would be. So at that point, I'm wondering, what, how, how do those ethical, that ethical conservativeness, how does that impact what you'll do in the science? That is, do those ethical reservations impact whether or not you may, might ever conduct experiments on how to perform a trait enhancement? So.
2: I think it has been true that this conservatism that you mentioned uh, may have been a feature of bioethics, particularly in genetics, but less so now than in the past. And I do think in some ways, having such an impressive cadre of scholars working in this arena has helped a lot with that. Uh, In the past, I think all too often, the efforts in bioethics that were trying to be really forward-looking were not well informed by scientific realities. Maybe that's what you're referring to. But increasingly, that's less of a problem. And I think uh, people, some of them at this meeting, who are trying to be uh, a little bit more uh, aggressive and looking forward, are predicting uh, reasonably accurately what the dilemmas are going to be in four or five years or ten years, as opposed to right this minute. Um, I don't think scientists in general are likely uh, to say, well, this is an area that we shouldn't go into unless they get a strong message of that sort from a very credible source. I mean, look at stem cell research, which will be talked about extensively at this meeting, and many scientists who understand how incredibly complicated the issues are about whether or not working with human stem cells is an ethical activity. But they are also incredibly interested in beginning that work because of its promise for understanding biology and for its applications to medicine and hoping uh, that the bioethical concerns Uh, will be dealt with in a way that comes up with a clear conclusion as quickly as possible. Uh, Because I think scientists, I wouldn't say they necessarily are uh, relegating those decisions to others, but I think most of them recognize they're not in a position uh, to have some exclusive wisdom about how the decisions ought to be made. Okay, you're you're, you're, uh, pointing to the people who have microphones. Thank you. Yes.
4: Hi, I'm Kelly from Emory University. Um, given that uh, there is this need to promote genetic literacy among the public, um, and that most of the public is probably going to be getting their information from the media, and those examples that you show us of a little bit of the oversimplification that may be portrayed by the media, are there steps that you can take to um, help overcome the oversimplification that the media may have? I mean, you spoke of the National Coalition for Health Professionals in the Education of Genetics. Is there maybe an analogous structure? for the media or for bodies like that?
2: Certainly, um, I think responsible reporters, and most reporters are pretty responsible, to be honest, uh, are very interested in gaining more information about the science. But most of them are not themselves highly trained in science. Uh, I do think the scientific community should make every effort uh, to reach out uh, to provide opportunities uh, for additional training in this uh, kind of information. At a time where the reporter is not working against a 5 o'clock deadline, which is all too often the case, Uh, so many uh, genome centers are now setting up uh, one- or two-day courses on genetics uh, for specifically targeted for the press, uh, where they have a chance to ask a large number of questions, to actually go into the lab and see how things are done, to sort of put some reality on the face of all of this. And I don't think we should just blame the press, either. I must say, uh, scientists often are as much of the problem. And, and you can sort of understand why. I mean, you've been laboring in the laboratory for 15 years on some problem, and you come up with an observation that's really pretty cool. And you get to publish a paper in science or nature or cell or something, and it's like this high moment of discovery. And suddenly somebody thrusts a microphone in front of you and says, Dr. X, is this or is this not the most exciting finding in science this year? And you're going to say, no. (laughs) And so people get caught up in this. And pretty soon, they kind of overstated the significance of what was done. And the press, of course, has their editors sort of saying, you know, it's not a story unless it's really big. It's got to be really good or really bad. Anything in between, we're not interested. And the two sort of get together. And pretty soon, uh, this interesting observation, which made a nice paper in Cell, uh, suddenly becomes above the fold in the New York Times and scares the hell out of everybody.
4: Uh, there's been um, some movement to allow um, for a differentiation between pure science and applied science and allowing the scientists themselves uh, to self-regulate as far as the uh, observation and exploration goes for the pure science uh, and to really, I think, allow the scientists to know within the regulations that have been, have worked and you know, continue as we create some for um, embryo research, et cetera, but to allow the scientists to some extent to self-regulate and to really focus the bioethics and the policy on the application, which is more in the business realm and away from the science realm. Um, I was wondering if you could, working in the science realm, um, give some thoughts as to whether or not you think that's possible to allow the scientists themselves to self-regulate in this area
2: guess I'm trying to think in my field, where's the boundary between pure and applied? Because it's not always that clear. Uh, so if you are sequencing a chromosome, that seems like pretty pure stuff. But at the same time, you're uncovering information that may have a very high value in the private sector. And so depending on how you draw your boundary, I can imagine that even in the pure science arena, there will be dilemmas coming up for which scientists are not necessarily well prepared to be the sort of self-decision makers. And even in that circumstance, I think somebody has to be thinking about the consequences. And in my experience, and certainly speaking for myself, scientists in general welcome the idea of somebody else having a look at this. Uh, I think most scientists love what they do, uh, believe that it has enormous value, but don't find themselves a particularly comfortable. In, in arenas when it starts to talk about the long-term consequences to individuals in society of what might happen as a consequence of what they're doing. They want some help with that. Yes.
5: Hi. Um, my name is Enko uh, Kipilov, and uh, I'm from Harvard University. I'd like to ask you, um, I'm kind of wondering about the flip side of this question um, about education and uh uh, how we we going to get the word out there to the public and um, make people aware that DNA and RNA pills do not really exist and then the, they don't do anything for them. So um, I was just wondering, um, maybe we have too few scientists among the politicians. Like you mentioned, we have one MD in the Congress, and and this is not it's, it's disturbing at least to me. Um, maybe if. I mean, we all know that if uh, this high technology, which is uh, 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 a a breaking technology, is in the hands of very few people, especially scientists, and they don't have much uh, power over over the laws that are passed in this country, Um, isn't this frightening? I mean, how are we supposed to um, vote for people who don't even know anything about science? So, uh, how how do you suggest we, we educate the masses, especially the? the the politicians who do have the power
2: of passing important laws like that. Thank you. I guess I have uh, portrayed a fairly negative uh, image of politicians, and I need to be careful about this because, in fact, there are some real heroes uh, in that group. Uh, I spent yesterday morning testifying in front of the Congressional Appropriations Subcommittee chaired by John Porter of Illinois. trained as a lawyer with no experience in science, but being that he is responsible for the oversight of the future of the National Institutes of Health, he has uh, taken the opportunity uh, to train himself about the intricacies of research in a wide variety of fields. Uh, In that hearing, uh, Mr. Porter asked me a series of questions that were right on target in terms of the precise opportunities and the risks involved in uh, genome research. It was a wonderful sort of demonstration of a committed individual with a lot of political power uh, who is using it, I think, to the benefit uh, of the public in a very credible way. I wish there were all of them were like that. But you don't have to be, I think, trained as a scientist to be an effective political leader if you're willing to put the effort into. And if there are people around willing to talk to you and train you about it. Um, Let me just say, many of you in the room are probably sort of wondering how to take your interest in bioethics and carry it to the next stage. What do you want to do with that? Uh, One of my frustrations is that we now have this, uh, I think, very vigorous research effort in bioethics that is producing a lot of interesting scholarship and conclusions, and yet this next step of moving that into policy that actually gets done is a more irregular process. Oftentimes what makes the difference is a congressional staffer working in a critical part the Congress, who knows about these issues and who is willing to sort of educate their boss about them. And don't be misled. Most of the decisions that Congress made or makes are often made by the staffers who understand the issue, explain it to their boss, and convince them uh, of the proper position to take. This would be a wonderful contribution uh, for people with familiarity with ethics and science uh, to make. Uh, for, it would be for some of you uh, to go and attach yourselves Uh, to the U.S. Congress and take on this effort of educating and in sort of raising the level of the dialogue, uh, that is an incredibly valuable contribution.
1: Hi, I'm Sean from Emory University. Earlier you referred to prevention and control of diseases as an altruistic act, and in a sense I agree a great deal. But that has severe implications on population growth and control, and I want to get a sense as to what you feel the limitations are, um, how that affects population. Is there going? I mean, we, most of the people in this room will not collect Social Security because of the life expectancy life expectancy increase. And uh, what are your opinions on that?
2: It's an important issue, and I guess I come at this uh, not again as uh, anybody with credentials, but certainly as a physician. My Focus on the attempt to alleviate human suffering is on individuals, and I have a very hard time uh, with arguments that say that's a bad thing because maybe that person uh, was ready to die now anyway. Uh, I'm not saying that's the uh, the argument you're putting forward, but the the notion that we should avoid uh, trying to alleviate individual suffering because it might increase larger population risks doesn't feel very comfortable. It rather instead seems to say, well, we also have a strong burden to figure out how we're going to cope with that uh, additional circumstance of an increased fraction of the population that's aging, hopefully aging healthfully and and not with chronic diseases, and how we're going to deal with a world population that continues to grow more rapidly than it should. I mean, we have scientific answers uh, to that latter question. We don't have social answers to that. Jim Neal, one of the founders of human genetics, uh, writing in a uh, rather controversial book called Position to the Gene Pool, uh, makes this argument in much more strident terms than I think I would, Uh, but he does, I think, catch people's attention by saying uh, scientists all too often ignore the problem you're raising uh, and imagine that they are doing a pure good thing uh, by focusing on trying to prevent and cure disease. Without also taking responsibility for the larger issues of the impact on the population structure and the sheer population numbers. And we should do that too. And geneticists are not immune from that responsibility. And I think he's right.
3: Joseph Shepard from the University of Notre Dame. Um, you mentioned the international aspect earlier. Um, of bioethics, and I think this is very important. You know, we talk about all the work Congress is doing, and it's very important, but, uh, and I'm not asking if the possibility exists, because I know it does. Last semester, uh, uh, the same day we learned in bioethics class that, you know, we weren't allowing human cloning in the United States, uh, MSNBC uh, reported a story that someone, you know, some other country said that day that they cloned a human. And uh, I thought, well, <laughs> this is great that uh, someone's keeping control of all this. Uh, What are we going to do in the future? I mean, it's going to happen. You know, people across seas or whatever are going to take the technologies available and use it. Um, What if it gets into areas that we don't really want it to go? What can
2: be done about that? I mean, don't have an easy answer. Uh, And I don't have an easy answer for a lot of the questions you're raising. That's why it's bioethics, right? Uh, So I think... As I mentioned, there are some mechanisms uh, to try to harmonize uh, discussions about ethics on the international stage, and UNESCO, with regard to genetics, uh, has been an important one. That same UNESCO statement uh, was adopted by the UN General Assembly uh, a few months ago uh, with relatively little in the way of changes, and it would be rather reassuring if actually implemented uh, across the world. Of course, there is no guarantee it would be. And, of course, the places where the mischief often occurs are often circumstances where no UNESCO or UN statement is going to carry much weight. Demagogues, uh, wherever they are, uh, will always utilize whatever tools at their disposal to try to increase their power. Uh, Genetics and biotechnology will be on their list. Uh, To the extent that we can try to anticipate that and prepare for that, we should do so. Uh, But I don't think we should delude ourselves uh, that various international deliberative bodies will be able to prevent uh, those kinds of uh, mischief. We should be prepared uh, when they occur uh, to utilize every bit of the power of the World court of opinion uh, to try to do something about it, just as we have been doing in other instances, such as abuses of uh, nuclear power or chemical warfare or bioterrorism, not always, however, with complete success. Okay? Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Dr. Collins. Since its conception, the Human Genome Project has brought with it potential implications which sparked the recent explosion in the bioethical field. Now, less than five years from its projected completion, the Human Genome Project promises the opportunity to extend the use of science to a new level. Thank you, Dr. Collins, on behalf of the Bioethics Forum of Princeton University and the students before you for your dedication to the field and willingness to share your ideas with us today. conference has gathered some of the most well-respected names in bioethics. We are extremely honored to have each of the speakers leading precept sessions. These individuals have contributed distinct and valued perspectives to the field. At this time, I'd just like to introduce each of today's precept speakers. I'd ask each precept speaker to stand and be recognized when his or her name is called, and please hold all applause until the end. Daniel Brock, Professor of Philosophy and Biomedical Ethics at Brown University, member of the Board of Directors (laughs) at the American Society of Bioethics and the Humanities. Alta Charo, Professor of Law and Medical Ethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and member of the University of Wisconsin Medical School Program in Medical Ethics. Norm Faust, Director of the Program in Medical Ethics, in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Rebecca Holmes Farley, Bioethics Fellow in the Boston University School of Public Health. Dan Kevlis, Professor of the Humanities at the California Institute of Technology and a scientific historian. Greg Pence, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Mark Sagoff, Senior Research Scholar, Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Maryland at College Park. Lee Silver, Professor of Molecular Biology at Princeton University and the author of Remaking Eden. Bonnie Steinbach, Professor of Philosophy at the State University of New York at Albany. Shirley Tillman, the Howard A. Pryor Professor of the Life Sciences and Chair of the Council on Science and Technology at Princeton University, and Lois Wingerson, Editor-in-Chief of the HMS Beagle and author of Mapping Our Genes and Unnatural Selection. Let's give all of our speakers a round of applause. Um, The next thing scheduled for you guys to go to is the precepts, which will begin at 11.15. And these precepts are located in different buildings around campus. So at 11 a.m., there will be Princeton students right downstairs from this building um, carrying signs with each of the speakers' names. So at 11 a.m., meet each of those students.